Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the NFL Scotland podcast. We've hit triple figures and we're having an episode to celebrate. My name is Cameron Hobbs. And my name is Paul Mitchell. For the last 22 months, we've been talking NFL, and that's all down to each and every one of you that downloads and listens to each episode. Indeed, we'll be hearing from some of our listeners in this show as we ask you to get in touch with your highlights from our previous 99. Uh, We've been saving him back for a bit for a special occasion, episode 100. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by a man of many of us got to see play and also in person in Glasgow at our live event. We're joined by 10-year Scottish Claymore, Scott Cooper. But before all that, we're joined by the entire team as we're having just a bit of a natter. So, Paul, let's kick off episode 100. We've got the whole team with us here, uh, and we're going to chat through just a couple of high-level questions to, to go over the last two and a bit years um, and talk about some of our personal highlights in the game, both when it comes to games, when it comes to players, and when it comes to the NFL Scotland podcast. But first of all, it's an achievement to make 100, is it not? Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I mean, this coronavirus crisis has brought podcasters out by the thousand. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how many actually last. But to hit 100 is pretty good. And to have gathered the, the team that we've gathered, I think it's quite impressive as well. Yes, and delighted to have all of them with us this evening. So I don't even know who we want to start with. But let's kick off, first of all, with, um, and, and you know, let's do our NFL Scotland podcast highlight. So, Paul, you and me can go first to set the scene for the guys, and then we'll follow around with them. So I'm going to turn this one over to you, Paul. What has been your highlight of the NFL Scotland podcast so far? I think it was probably speaking to many of the people we've spoken to, but I think I think the insight from Jim Ballard on both the interviews we've done with Jim, I think I've just learned so much about the game just from sitting and chatting to him. So I, I think I would go with that as my highlight. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. For me, I think having had the opportunity to go and sit in the Browns locker room with Jamie Gillen uh, and, you know, to do a bit for the BBC, but then at the end of it, have just a bit of a blether with them for the podcast. That was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, I think that was absolutely tremendous. The other one was I, I actually think one of my highlights is the first live event that we did, because, you know, at that point we had no idea how many people would co- uh, turn up to these things, had no idea how it would go. We planned, we put it together, we chatted about format, you know, and, and then it, it landed really well. And we got really positive feedback. So for me, that was that was tremendous. Um, and we also had at the very first episode, also at that very first event, the guest was Jamie Borthwick. So we'll go straight to Jamie. Look at that segue. Uh, that was uh, done intentionally. That's what you learn after 100 podcasts. Smooth <laughs> links like that. So Jamie Borthwick, we'll come to you first of all. What's been your NFL Scotland podcast highlight so far? Yeah, without a doubt, it was that first live event at the, the Golf Tavern. Um, getting to be, you know, sitting there and be part of it in front of this amazing community that, you know, it wasn't exactly unearthed, but it'd been brought together and was and was made, you know, tangible for the first time um, was amazing. It's, it's something I, I really, really cherished. I felt really, really lucky um, to play such a big part in it. And it was a great night. The live the, the, the live show part of it was fantastic. And then everyone just getting on chatting and, and, and watching the games together. It was, it was like nothing I'd done really before with the NFL. I'd done it with my mates, but to do it as part of a larger community, that was that was special. Mates, but to do it as part of a larger community, that was that was special. And then on to 
the second live event. And then we were lucky enough to have two other members of the NFL Scotland podcast at that one, as we had both Gordon McGuinness and Charles Patterson. So, and Charles, you've actually appeared at two of these now. So we'll come to you next. What's been your NFL Scotland highlight? Well, the, the live shows, Cameron, are terrific. But that one, that first one I went to in particular, um, I will never forget it because of your attempts to try and be a defensive end failed miserably that night. Um, watching you vainly attempt to, to shove Cameron over while he held you up with one hand was fun, phenomenal. And there's pictorial evidence, which I'm sure we'll dig out over the years to to relive that moment. So it made me feel that as much as I have delusions of grandeur about being an NFL player, it's not, I'm, I'm not the only one. But it's, it is a wonderful experience to be in, in that in environment with, with, with like-minded people, as, as, as Jimmy was just saying there. And I think the other thing is it's just getting to talk to people about a sport, which is so, it's, it's so varied and tactical and in-depth. And you do wonder when you, when you kind of get into it, do you think, does everyone think like, like I do about this? And does everyone get obsessed about it like I do? And the answer is yes. And it's great to see so many people hooking onto these live events. And I do hope that when this, uh, when this crisis is over, that we can have another one quite soon. Yes, indeed. I had a big red hand mark right in between my man tits for about three hours <laughs> that night. <laughs> There's a normal Saturday for night for you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> normal, normal Saturday night. Uh, Gordon, you were also present at that second event. What's been your NFL Scotland podcast highlight so far? Yeah, I'm going to go down the live event route as well, but I'm going to say the Glasgow one. Um, that was really special for me, living in Glasgow. Um, it was nice to see that there was still like a big appetite for the podcast out with Edinburgh. And obviously we're, we're catering for everyone across Scotland, but the events before that had been um, through in Edinburgh at the Golf Tavern. That was great. And the, the guests we had on that, I remember like growing up watching the Claymores play. So to be like sat, stood next to uh, Scott Cooper, just talking about American football in front of an audience was quite a surreal experience. Um, and I just thought overall the, the atmosphere that night was really quite special. And I, I loved that. Another person that we had as well at that Glasgow event coming up on stage, he was also helping us out at one of the Edinburgh ones as well, Ian Stephen. Ian, what's been your highlight so far of the NFL Scotland pod? Um, I think it was episode 78 when Paul was quoted saying it has nothing to do with gender and everything to do with likability. Um, I think he was either talking about commentary or he was talking about his theory on romance, one of the two. <laughs> Yes. Oh dear, it's just jealousy because Beth Woods has got a deeper voice than me. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh Ian, I knew you would come up with a cracker. I genuinely <laughs> did. Gents, we're going to switch it now to the weirdest NFL experience that you've had. And I'm, I'm going to start before I go to Cameron. My weirdest NFL experience was I was lucky enough uh, to be in Dallas a few years ago and I did the tour of the Cowboys Stadium and I joined some New Yorkers kicking field goals so I gave the camera to my the eldest child Adam who was then positioned behind the goal I kicked a field goal I was thrilled with myself asked him if he took a picture of it because that's what he was there to do and he said no he says we were too busy playing and catching the ball so my there is no pictorial record of me kicking a field goal at Cowboys Stadium and to this day 
I am gutted. Cameron, what about you? What's your, your weirdest moment? So if, if we take the NFL out of it and we do American football, one of the weirder moments that I've had is I did the tannoy for the Edinburgh Wolves for a season when they were at Megatland. I think a weird moment for me was a message being sent directly from the referee to me telling me that I had to stop being so biased for the home team or the Wolves would get disqualified. I think that's definitely a first <laughs> that's ever been told to a home Tannoy person. But I think another weird one, a weird moment, and it, to be fair, you pointed this one out to me, Paul, was when we were in New Orleans and we were in the walk-ons pub uh, Yahoo Fantasy were doing a live event with Tank Williams. He was there live for NFL Fantasy. And we just lurked at the bar as you chatted to some Eagles fans and I tried to get my face on the telly. And I think that probably sums it up the whole thing the whole way through. <laughs> You're quite happy just chatting to some people, having a quiet Coke in the corner. And there's me trying to get my face on the telly. Uh, I didn't succeed. But I did get a photo with him, so that was nice. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that 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 was good. The other weird thing, if we're talking about that, was when we were in the stadium and and the Saints beat the Eagles. There was the Eagles fan going down the stairs towards the end of the game because he he needed to leave, and he was getting absolute dogs abuse nicely from the Saints fans, and he was just smiling and waving and smiling and waving, you know, taking it all in good in good part till he turned to actually go down the stairs to go out, and he just did the, you know, the big salute to all the Saints fans, which I loved. I thought that was typical Eagles. So let's stay with the Eagles team. Ian, what's the weirdest uh, connection you've had to the NFL? Um, I think possibly appearing on uh, American television because I was going over um, to watch the Super Bowl in Philadelphia, so ABC News did a feature on me. They phoned me up and interviewed me about uh, going over and then when I was there um, a couple of people uh, recognised me from the news report and came up and had a chat with me. I think that was probably the, the weirdest. We've got on earth pictures of that. You must have it somewhere, do you? It's on um, well, Daily Record ran a story as well. It's, it's all on the internet. You can find it quite easily. Is it true, Ian, that they had to subtitle you? Yes. <laughs> 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 Which is, as, as um, Charles and um, Jamie will, will tell you, the, the number one rule in journalism is not to become the story. Um, and the number one rule in subtitling is not to be subtitled. And I'm a <laughs> subtitler, so it was... Oh, that's brilliant. Charles, you've probably had many... You've you've been involved in some of the London games and things like that. You'll see one or two weird things. Yeah, indeed. Well, the, the, the London game in October, I was fortunate enough to go and, and work at the Raiders-Bears game. And it was pretty awe-inspiring to see Khalil Mack warming up in front of me. Um, that, was, that was good, but it wasn't very weird. It was just a bit scary. But uh, the weirdest thing that happened was the day before when the games are obviously on a Sunday and Saturday is a bit of a down day for everybody. But there was a shoot on and I was told to go into Oxford Street and interview Arden Key, the defensive end for the, the Raiders in a shop and he was promoting or plugging something and doing a bit of a signing and the Raiderettes were there as well which made it doubly um, interesting to go and and uh, and do some filming we weren't I was, I was then told I wasn't allowed to film the Raiderettes um, which was fair enough but then Arden Key came along very nice guy huge man six foot seven and then once we'd done the interview he proceeded to ask me for shopping tips about where to go and um, and as as an Edinburgh boy, I had to say to him, listen, I'm not really very familiar with where you want to go in Regent Street or Oxford Street, but what do you want to, what do you want to go and buy? 
And he said, oh, I just want some London merchandise, you know. Um, and I said, well, I think you'll probably find it here on Oxford Street in any one of many tat shops. So that was a bit <laughs> odd. And um, to say the Raiders won the next day, because I was I, not not least for the fact that I was rooting for them because they were playing the Bears, because um, I hate the Bears. <laughs> but um, I, I, I was so struck by how nice a guy Arden Key was that he's a, I've got a little bit of a soft spot for him and the Raiders now after that. Oh, that's that's pretty good, Gordon. What about yourself? I mean, you've you've worked in the industry. What, what's been the strangest thing you've come across apart from Jameis Winston being classed as a quarterback for fantasy football? <laughs> My, mine isn't that dissimilar from Ian's. This comes from before um, it was a full time job for me. I went over to Denver when the Ravens played there in the playoffs and won that game in overtime. Um, and I joined up with, the game was in Denver, so it was a road game. I joined up with a group of Ravens fans who watch games together every week in Denver. And because it was a playoff game, ABC from Baltimore showed up to, to film then. And once they found out that there was this guy from Scotland over for the game at this pre-game party, they, they come over and they film and they interview me. But they didn't subtitle me. The interviewer couldn't necessarily understand what I was saying to the point he couldn't understand what my name was. So there is a tweet out there somewhere from an ABC presenter in Baltimore, which lists me as Gorky from Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's tremendous. Jamie, you've got to try and beat that, my friend. Well, I really wish I could say it was meeting Joe Tooney uh, in a pub in the Cowgate uh, and then him coming back with all your mates to your flat to drink tins of tenants and play FIFA. But that actually happened to my mate and not me. But I've oh. seen the pictures and it looked like a great night. <laughs> uh, the weirdest one for me would be um, interviewing Whitney Merciless at the Hibs training ground just outside Ormiston. Uh, he'd come over uh, for holiday, um, decided to take in a Hibs game at Easter Road, um, was spotted on the cameras, and then so Hibs had him down to the training ground, uh, and he did interviews alongside uh, Liam Fontaine, their centre-half at the time, and uh, talked about how much he loves soccer while wearing a Hibs top. Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> it's tremendous. Uh, Whitley Mercer is a great guy. We had him on the podcast as well. He was he was tremendous. I should have mentioned actually when it, the the highlight, the other highlight that I think I should have mentioned was the fact when all six of us got together for the first time uh, to drink a beer, which I think was just a little while back because we hadn't actually all been in the same room hmm. at the same time. Cameron, you want to you you've got a choice here. You can either go for favorite player or favorite game. Which which are you going to take? So I, I'm going to take favorite game. I think that we should leave on favorite player. Um, and favorite game. I'm going to kick off with this. I'll come to you, Paul, and then we'll work back through the guys again. I don't think we've ever covered this. And to be honest, actually, I think. My favourite game is a very recent one because it was an emotional rollercoaster and you're going to think this is a dig, but it really isn't. It just was one of those games that had me up in my seat and my head in my hands and then up in my seat and my head in my hands. But it was the, the Niners Saints game from last season. 46-48. And I mean, it really went down to the last play. We were messaging each other um, all the way through it and it was, you know, we were handing each other the game at previous... Uh, Numerous times, oh, this is yours now, you're pushing on from here, oh, no, this is your game now, this is your game. And it went both ways, and then right at the end, I thought, oh, do you know what, we've blown it. And then that massive penalty on Kittle, uh, and we had the opportunity then to go on and win it, which we did. And it it was thrilling. I think because we had the added effect that, obviously, between the two of us, there's been banter, and there's not been a lot of Saints 49ers games over the last couple of years, obviously, don't 
meet each other that often. Um, but it was absolutely brilliant. A real highlight, uh, a thrilling game on what was a brilliant season for the Niners last season. Uh, and I didn't think we had half a hope in hell. Um, and I really didn't think we'd come back and do it. So a real down low, up high game, that one. Uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. What about you, Paul? Yeah. Well, the Saints getting screwed at home by a bad call, that just doesn't happen very often, does it? (laughs) (laughs) I've got two two favourite games, because I'm not going to go there, because I'll start to rant. One uh, was, as a kid, I remember listening to New Orleans play Atlanta. Um, So you'd be talking in the 80s uh, on New Year's day here, New Year's Eve in America, I refused to go out uh, with my folks at New Year, which I normally did, because I thought the game might be on the radio, and it was, and New Orleans beat Atlanta, and I remember listening to that, and the Saints actually had a winning record that season, uh, which was just highly irregular for them. My favourite NFL game, though, was my first trip to see the Saints, my first NFL game, which was at Wembley in 2008, New Orleans against San Diego, Drew Brees against Philip Rivers, and it remains one of the best games I think there's been in London. It was, you mentioned roller coaster. That's what it was. I didn't want to see the Saints lose watching them for the first time. And it was just a brilliant game. So, Jamie, your personal NFL game highlight. I did really think, but the one that really sticks out for me in terms of just memories of it is uh, the 2011 NFC Championship game when the Giants beat the 49ers in overtime. Yeah. You know, that one, Cam. Yeah. It wasn't a classic. It wasn't a classic, to be honest, but it was just engrossing because the Giants ran the ball so well um, and really ground down San Francisco. And it was it was one of the first times I really remember admiring defensive play. I, like the, the, the Giants were phenomenal in defense. I think Justin Tuck was absolutely outstanding that day. And just for a game to sit down, it was one kind of staying up all night to watch as well. I watched it with my brother, who is also a 49ers fan, which was also fun. Um, and then just the kind of release of having the, the, the overtime field goal winner, uh, it just stands right out of my mind, even more than the than the Super Bowl win over the Patriots itself. It, it, it stands out more than that. I, I just I, I loved it. That's what it's all about. Being a UK NFL fan is those late, late nights and staying up, seeing it through to the, to the finish. Yep, that's fair. I can give you that one. We'll move on quickly, though. Um, and uh, Gordon, you're up next. What's been your NFL highlight when it comes to games? Yeah, I really didn't think I would be answering this with a Patriots Super Bowl win, but here we are. Um, the uh, the game where they beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, uh, we watched that again recently as a little watch-along event for PFF, and I forgot how good a game it was when you had the two big passing plays by the Seahawks at the end of the first half, you know, you had it coming all the way down to the wire with them lining up, not handing the ball to Marshall and Lynch, Malcolm Butler coming up with that ridiculous interception at the end. And that's a game that having gone back and watched a couple of times now really, really stands the test of time. So as much as I've hated watching the Patriots win as many Super Bowls as they have over the last uh, two decades, that that's probably one of my, my favorite non Ravens NFL games. Yep, no, that's grand. I, I'll jump on that one as well. I think as a moment, it's one that I'll share is when Malcolm Butler intercepted that ball, I was out my seat, something unreal. Um, and it's not something I thought I'd ever see myself doing for a Patriots win. Charles, what about you? Well, you would think I would pick a Packers moment. And there's, 
I wouldn't. I'm not going to pick the the Super Bowl because I actually never stayed up to watch that. I had to watch it the next morning. I can't remember why as well. Um, the championship game when they beat the Bears at Soldier Field was phenomenal because not only for the fact that B.J. Raji scored a touchdown on an interception return, um, the the biggest man on the field, uh, but to beat the Bears in the championship game on their own turf was tremendous. But the the best game I've ever watched on the TV was the Super Bowl between Pittsburgh and Arizona, which had everything. And I think it was partly because Arizona was such a massive underdog and came so close to winning it. Um, and you had Life Fitzgerald scoring with 90 seconds left. Um, you had James Harrison's 100-yard interception return. Um, huge plays. And then you've got the most ridiculous catch in the end zone from Santonio Holmes from that pass from Roethlisberger. It, the game was brilliant. It was out of this world. And it's the one game that sticks with me as a Super Bowl, which I, when, I've, when you see the repeats coming on the telly uh, in, in playoff season, you see the, the, the old Super Bowl games pop up. That's the one I record and watch because I remember watching it. I think I was in Glasgow at the time. And I remember watching it on my own at, at night just because I didn't have any work the next day and I was glued to it. And it, it's probably the best Super Bowl I've ever seen. Yep, no, that's grand. Although I think someone might come and challenge you on that one in just a minute. But Ian, <laughs> to finish up with you, are you sticking with the Super Bowl or are you going somewhere else? Well, the the Super Bowl was special for me because I'm, I'm sitting in a, a bar in Philadelphia with hundreds of fans who were desperate for the Eagles to win their, their first ever Super Bowl and the atmosphere there was special and I think it's something that I'll never uh, forget in my life. The equivalent is sitting in a, a pub in Scotland when Scotland are in the, the World Cup final. Um, but for me, the favourite game that I ever watched was back in 2013. It was Philadelphia against Detroit. Um, with a special guest appearance of about 10 feet of snow. Um, mm. The Eagles eventually looked like comfortable winners, winning 34-20, but at halftime, I think Detroit were in the league. It looked like nobody would ever do anything uh, serious in the game because the weather was so bad. And then from nowhere, Shady McCoy manages to put together 217 yards rushing for an, an absolutely phenomenal uh, performance. I always love it when it's a, a snow game, but to see somebody is so adept at what he was doing, just tear Detroit apart in that game was fantastic. Shady said it was the worst game he'd ever played in, but also the best as well. Deshaun Jackson manages to come down with four or five catches in that game. Deshaun saying it was an absolute dream for him because he lived in California, had never even seen snow, and he dreamed of playing a, a game like that. So, I think that and, and the visuals of Calvin Johnson yeah. caught a pass, and as he he came up, just his entire visor was white, just all the snow <laughs> packed into it. Just a fantastic visual, and also um, Jason Kelsey having all the snow in his beard, so he looked like Santa for most of the game. <laughs> Yeah, that I was going to touch oh. on that. That's that scene, that shot of Calvin Johnson coming up, and it's just a a mask full of snow. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I remember watching it. That was the first snow game that I ever watched, and it was it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. Some of them can be an absolute non-event, but it wasn't. <laughs> the snow added so much to it. Absolutely brilliant. Right, Paul, back to you to take us back through the final question. Then, 
Cameron, I actually be remiss of me. I talked about my weirdest NFL experience being kicking the field goal and not getting the picture. I should also mention the 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 time that I went up on stage at the NFL event in Edinburgh and uh, did the commentary game to see who was the best commentator out the three people that were selected, yeah. and they had no no idea um, that I could actually do it for a living. And the guy that I who was to follow me went. That was really good, and it's. <laughs> but it was getting. It, it took about fifteen to thirty seconds for the police to start booing me, and the people, the people on stage couldn't figure out why I was being booed, and it was utterly hysterical. I loved every second of that. It it was weird. It was you know being roundly booed and things like that, and uh, the, the somebody tweeted Neil Reynolds many congratulations for picking out the one professional broadcaster in the room. Um, so yeah, so that that was slightly weird. I'm not sure Neil would ever forgive me for. Doing doing that anyway let, let's go on to favorite player i mean there's there's just been so many and it can either be from your own team or 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 from from everywhere so cameron you you get to go first up so i i've really thought about this one and it's a it's a difficult one for me because there's been so many different players that i've really enjoyed watching but i keep coming back to a guy that you know scored I'm pretty sure he scored the first touchdown that I ever saw in a live NFL game. He's a player that I always enjoyed watching. Uh, a guy who's still pretty much just about playing now. And in fact, he'll be playing for another 30 years. But Frank Gore. I think Frank Gore is the player that I just thoroughly enjoyed watching. He wasn't necessarily that massive big play running back. He wasn't necessarily the guy, you know, he's not a Barkley or a McCaffrey or a Kamara or anything like that. But he just kept running with the ball and he was so reliable uh it was just a guy that i loved watching loved celebrating him score uh it was an honor to see him play live uh and genuinely i think frank gore it's always the position that if i went back and spoke to my younger self i thought i could have i could never have played in the nfl but i could have potentially been a running back in the mold of frank gore in the sense that i've got tiny little legs like i wear a 29 inch leg and it's too those trousers are too long for me um I'm five foot eight and I'm fifty percent torso. It's ridiculous. In fact, let's be honest. Look at the size of me. I'm about eighty percent torso, um, but the legs are short and I've got a low center of gravity. And it's the one thing when I played rugby, it was always quite you know it was difficult to take down. Uh, and I always thought, Do you know what, I could have been a running back. So I loved watching Frank Gore because I always used to think, oh, that's that's how I would have liked to have played the game. So there you go. Thanks, Cameron. I'd actually written down Frank Gore. Before you mention it, because that's who I guess, but the, the title of the podcast, gents, is Cameron Brags About His 29 Inches. So. <laughs> no, I did say less than 29 inches. <laughs> no, no, no. What, what, what's said, let's not let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, Ian, let's go to you, your f favourite player. I think um, for the Philadelphia Eagles, I think it's got to be uh, Brian Dawkins. Um, the, the man is an absolute legend, Hall of Famer, first ballot. Um, what he did at the safety position, I'm, I'm not sure it can be replicated again. Such an inspiration. Uh, you saw one of the Madden intro videos where he was giving a speech to the rest of his secondary and you wanted to pull on a helmet and run out and play for him. Um, but in terms of a player not playing for the Eagles, I would have to go with... Barry Sanders. I think if there was ever a, a player where you would 
pay to go along to watch. It was him because the man was just absolute magic. You'd sit and watch the game. You'd put up with his minus two run, minus two run, minus one run, minus two run, all of a second from absolutely nowhere, makes three men miss and then goes for like 75 yards. He's an absolutely fantastic player, Barry Sanders. Yeah, he was an utter joy to watch. Jamie, I mean, the Giants have had some great players over the years. Are you going Giants? I'm going Giants. I'm not going like an absolute legend or star of the Giants, though. My favourite player is Victor Cruz. Um, He gave me that sort of like childlike... Um, feeling of, of loving a player, you know, just like it was, you know, young and you, he's got the the style and he's got the celebration that everyone loved. But more than that, the, the backstory was just unbelievable. He's an undrafted free agent. You go back further, he couldn't get any scholarships despite being a, an absolute star at, at high school because of his, his, his poor exam results. He had to work and work and work to get into it and, 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 Tragically, like the big kind of turnaround for him was his, his, his dad taking his own life in 2007, and that's what really gave him the kind of verve to really go for it, get into college, turned up at the Giants, earned himself a, a place in the Giants team, got a serious injury, and his, his, his whole rookie year basically out injured, and then explode on the scene, win a Super Bowl, uh, second team All Pro, um, and a Pro Bowl appearance as well. And it was just fun. He was the guy you wanted the, the ball to go to um, so that you could experience that sort of joy that he brought on the on the field. It wasn't for a very long time, but I just I, I just loved it. I loved that. Uh, and that's what I feel like a, a wide receiver, one of the big kind of star positions on the field. That's what a wide receiver should be. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll, I'll go down and say, you know, my favourite players, I mean, Drew Brees would be the obvious one to say, but the guy whose jerseys have got Darren Sproles, I, I love the little guy, five foot six, you know, not the biggest guy in the world. I mean, Ian, you'll appreciate he played for the Eagles as well. Unfortunately, he didn't play uh, when I watched the Eagles. I was really hoping to see him as well. But, he, you know, just to get a, a, a little bit like Jamie, to, you, you're looking for guys who, you know, aren't the automatic superstars and have to work that little bit harder. And I always thought, you know, that Dan Sproles did precisely that. Charger for five years, Saints for three years, and Eagles for five years as well. You know, three Pro Bowls and, you know, ju- just tremendous NFL 2010's all decade team. You know, he just tremendous player to watch really enjoy good on the return as well Gordon are, are you going Ravens or are you going wider well I'm quite glad that Ian went with two and he gave an Eagles one and a, and a, and a more general one because it means that I don't feel bad about cheating and going with two as well <laughs> I, I thought about like all throughout history and the players that made me like fall in love with the game for the first time and um, and then ultimately like doing it as a, as a job but then the past couple of years I've found that childlike excitement watching the game again. And it's, you know, rather than just being a job or, you know, a job that I obviously really enjoyed anyway, I've got so much more excitement back just from a a fan's perspective as well. Um, So although they've only been in the, the league two and three years, it's Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes because there's something really special that every time a quarterback either drops back or has the ball in his hands, when... I almost just hold my breath to see what they do this time. The amount of ridiculous throws that Mahomes has had, the you know, the no look passes, the he's had some ridiculous fourth and fifteen and third and seventeen throws. 
And then just how ridiculous Lamar Jackson is in the open field that he can make people miss. There's there's something so exciting about just watching those two players play. So as much as they've only been in the NFL a couple of seasons, uh, I think they're probably my favorite my favorite players that I've ever seen. Charles, I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary, and when he got drafted with Chicago, there's a great line by one of the players that they're interviewing. He says, look, I was a better player than Michael Jordan for two weeks, and that was it. You know, he just took over. And I guess players like Lamar, Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, I mean, they walk in, prove very quickly what they can do and almost carry a team. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is impressed in Green Bay for a long time. You've a Brett Favre. Where are you going to go? Well, I've got my two, and Rogers is one of them. I think listening to this by now, you know that I worship at the Church of Aaron. <laughs> um, although things might be gonna, decidedly you, dicey. You, you, need, you need to love some love. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he divides opinion in terms of his character, but I, I stand by the only quarterback um, of the last 20 years that could make the throws that Rogers could is, is Patrick Mahomes. And I think... Mahomes is his heir because, I mean, you look at the number of amazing plays that Rodgers has made over the years, the Hail Marys and the, and the playoffs against Arizona and uh, the one against Detroit, the, the pass of the century against Dallas in the playoffs. He's been let down by a dysfunctional organisation. Otherwise, I think he would have won many more Super Bowls. Um, and how long he stays, I don't know, but that's for another time. <laughs> I'm sure you'll come back and ask me that at some point. Yep. But the one player who I wanted to watch when I really got into this sport about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And if he was playing now, Cameron, he would be right up there for chief ball bag of the week. Um, <laughs> it's Terrell Owens. And Terrell Owens, it was purely for the fact that he just brought entertainment whenever he played. Um, and you just didn't know quite what he was going to do next. He was falling out with people. He was getting fined. I mean, he's the, he is the man who, after one particular touchdown celebration, the NFL had to adopt a new rule banning players from carrying foreign objects onto the field. Um, this is a guy who uh, offended everybody that he played against um, and did everything daft. And But he was pure box office. And every time the NFL was on, on on a Sunday night, and if it was... If it was T.O. and his team, I was tuning in because you didn't know what he was going to do next. And don't forget, this is a guy that in the Super Bowl was on one leg and still caught over 100 yards worth of passes. I think he'd broken his leg prior to that uh, Eagles-Patriots um, Super Bowl. So he was a top, top player. He's a that, Hall of Famer. That, that, that exact play brought in the horse collar rule. Yeah. When he broke his yeah. leg, yep. yep. Yeah, so he's a very important player in the history of the NFL. Um I, I, I just loved the fact that he was controversial, he was glamorous, he was flashy, he would go and celebrate with the cheerleaders and nick their pom-poms, he would jump in the Salvation Army bucket, he would get his <laughs> Sharpie out and sign the ball, he would annoy the, the greatest and the good, and even when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame, he chose not to go, he went and did his own celebration at his university instead, so he's, he's a total wild card, and listen, no saint, but absolute pure five-star box office. And then when he was on, when he was playing and he was on the telly, you just didn't know what was going to happen. He was one of the guys that got me really into this and realized that this is, it's not just about talent. It's about razzmatazz, glamour and excitement. 
Fantastic. Right, great content there from us as we've shared our highlights of the NFL Scotland podcast and some of our own personal highlights of the NFL game so far. We reached out on Twitter and we asked you to share your thoughts. So we've got a couple of those coming up straight after that. Myself and Paul caught up with wide receiver, 10-year career with the Scottish Claymores. If you're at our Glasgow event, you got to see him live. We've never had him on the podcast. We've been saving this one up because he, for me, is quintessentially Scottish and related to the NFL. We were delighted to catch up with Scott Cooper, so we hope you enjoy this one. Hey guys, just a quick message to say congratulations on reaching the ton from everyone at 99 yards. Well done, here's to many more. Hi guys, Tim here from the full 10 yards. I want to say congratulations, welcome to the 100 Club. It's personal highlights for me, obviously, any time that I've uh, come into contact on the podcast, because you know full well I love the sound of my own voice. But in all seriousness, if I listen to all the highlights of the pods, uh, it probably last as long as your podcasts do, so I'll spare you, I'll spare you that. Always enjoyed your meetups, always enjoyed your work, so keep it up, and here's to the next 100. Well done, folks. Hi guys, it's Liz from NFL Girl UK. Hope you're all keeping well. Just want you to leave a quick message today. Congrats on your 100th episode. I always enjoy listening, especially the banter, but mostly for the insight and knowledge you bring. Have a great show and I look forward to the day we can all get together for drinks. Take care, stay safe. Hey Cameron and Paul, Lauren Callahan here, wishing you happy 100th episode of the NFL Scotland podcast. Loved how you've managed to find stories that relate to Scotland, such as David Dojabo, Jamie Gillen, Cameron Craig. Um, personal highlight, obviously, has been the live nights that you've put on and also being invited on to do the NFL Pick 6 in the first season and getting the first 6 out of 6. Hope you enjoy the rest of the next 100 episodes. Thanks. Hi guys, Brian here representing the Jerry Bowlers as your current pick king of NFL Scotland. Congratulations on reaching a century of episodes. It's a brilliant show, great live events, excellent knowledge of what's happening around the league. It's really helped me learn about uh, other teams than just the 49ers. Keep rolling and I look forward to you getting to your 200th show. And I look forward to defending my NFL Scotland pick and crown when the season starts. Stay safe. So for episode 100 of the NFL Scotland podcast, we felt we had to get somebody on who was synonymous with American football and synonymous with Scotland. And we thought, who better than a man that we were lucky enough to have live at our Glasgow event last year? We are delighted to be joined now on Zoom by Scottish Claymore wide receiver, Scotland's number one American football player from the 90s, Scott Cooper. Hello, Scott. Good morning, guys. How are we? We're very well. It's great to have you on the podcast, Scott. We we, we had that great night in Glasgow, but this is obviously going to go to, to a wider audience. So we'd like to know a little bit about you before we, we dig into the Claymore stuff. What initially attracted you to watch the NFL? Oh, well, I think I'm a bit older than you guys. So uh, like many people in the UK who have been around American football for years, it was Channel 4. You know, it was Channel 4 mid-80s when... Those busy days when you only had four channels to, to choose from, and of a Sunday night, you would find yourself looking for something other than songs of praise. And um, yeah, it just became something I sat down with my, my dad and started watching was the, the NFL highlight show. And it was just something, you know, new and fresh and bright and interesting. And it just really got hooked on, on watching that. And then I was at high school, uh, mid 80s, and you know, the 
we heard, ironically, I used to speak American football with a guy who sat beside me and and he said, you know what, there's a there's a local American football junior team, some boys are playing it in Glasgow Green and uh, jumped in a bus one Saturday when I was 14 years old and uh, next time I stopped playing was, was uh, 20 years later when I was 34. <laughs> that is fantastic. Were you a sporty guy, you know, at school, the, you know, football, rugby, all that oh. kind of thing? Actually, I would I would say no. Um, I I mean, I grew grew up tall before I grew out the way, so I wasn't <laughs> really in control of my arms and legs as a as a gangly teenager. So so no, I wasn't the, the world's most gifted athlete. Um, um, some would say I reflected that on the American football, pitch, <laughs> but um, it was no no. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed sport. I, I love sport, and um, I just found something, you know. Was say if you couldn't in those days in, in the mid eighties, you weren't you weren't given a wide range of sports. If you went to school in the west of Scotland, if you couldn't kick a football, you know, knee luck, that was it. So uh, I, I found something that I enjoyed, and with a wee bit of of you know practice and and, and really getting hooked on it, became a passion. You know, as a young teenager, I it's all I it slept and breathed basically and uh, I just used to want to catch footballs all the time and had some good friends from the from the junior team and we would do that all weekend just throw the ball and catch the ball for hours and, and looking back it probably stood me in good stead that you know that's where, where I founded my base skills and just catch the ball um, so yeah that, it was it was the sport that hooked me and it hooked me young and, and, and I never looked back so Scott, when you were watching the, the game when you were young then, was there a team that you naturally supported or were drawn to? Yeah, there was. I mean, that was oh, the Washington Redskins were my team. You know, from that was when uh, it was Theismann and Reggins and and for me, um, I wore the the number eighty one all through my career. For after a man called Art Arthur Monk who played eighty one for the for the the Washington Redskins in, in those you know late eighties, early nineties, he was the the wide receiver. Uh, that uh, I used to watch for, for my team. It was very difficult trying to choose a team because, you know, we, we didn't see a great deal of the teams on the TV, but you could connect that way with players. And it and it is one of these things that American footballers all across seem to just find a player they idolise and you want to get that number on your chest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I know it's a, a bit of a popular statement, but you'll find that most people kind of, well, a lot of people maybe picked a team back then or, or is it they get into American football for who's doing really well at the time. And at the time that I discovered the sport, the uh, the Redskins were a, were a fantastic team. You were obviously a wide receiver then when you got into the game and that's what you're saying. That was the thing you were naturally drawn to. Looking back, if, there were, if you hadn't been a wide receiver, is there another position that you would have wanted to play? Oh, it would probably, I think, I know it's a bit, a bit cliche, but I think, I'd probably more consider myself quarterback. In fact, when I used to play junior American football for the Glasgow Lions, I would I would sometimes uh, have a wee go quarterback, and in, uh, in, in some of the games, maybe when we were first learning, um, we used to play without pads and stuff, and I played a bit of quarterback, you know. And uh, ironically, the um, the last thing I ever did in an American football field was was as a quarterback. But that's another story. 
Did playing quarterback give you then a better understanding of your own position at wide receiver? Yeah, I think it does to a certain extent. I mean, what, it just helps you understand a bit seeing the field, um, you know, and just joining the dots and, and joining joining everything up. The um, Yeah, I, I think from a vision point of view, it just lets you understand the field a bit more. So in terms of that, so you were play, playing with Glasgow and, and obviously enjoying it, now, you know, that just the, the sheer joy just you know playing with your mates and things like that but when did it start to take a more serious turn when did you know the, the Scottish Claymore's angle start to come for you the, uh, the boys own story right there um, I mean all American football had ever been to me was a hobby um, you know from high school and then I went to university and um, we were playing in a British league so it was that as I said that weekend warrior thing you know you would that's what you, you you did what you did during the week, man. At the weekend, you, you met up and you. We used to line the pitches and things like that. But we, you know, the team I joined, the Glasgow Lions, in the in the late eighties, very early nineties. You know, American football was in a real heyday at the amateur level in Britain. There was hundreds of teams. You know, we the Lions would play at Helenvale in the East End of Glasgow and fill in crowds of a few hundred. And the level was pretty decent. You know, there was some money kicking about in the game from sponsors and. And teams could bring over some quite decent imports. I mean, Sean Payton. Sean Payton played for the Leicester Panthers. <laughs> which which I it? always find is absolutely bizarre. Um, I, I think he played literally year, my last year as a junior. So I was on the chain gang. I used to work the chain crew at, at Glasgow Lions games. But um, yeah, so I mean, the, the, the British leagues, and, and so until the, the mid-90s, the British league was pretty. Pretty high level, but what happened then in, in God, what, 91, I think it was, or something, was the World League appeared, the World League of American Football. And I didn't even consider myself of, an, of a standard that I would make that. And in fact, I didn't make it, you know, the cream of the of the British game were taken. Um, this was the, 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 the days when they were talking about Martin the Fire and stuff, joining the, the Monarchs, etc. But some of the, the, the real, real cream of... Um, of British American football made that first incarnation of the London Monarchs in the in the the World uh, League. I don't I don't even think I tried out. I don't even know if you could try it if it was invitation only. Um, but then that took a hiatus for a year uh, or two. And I remember I was kind of 1994 playing at the highest level I could in British game. Was playing at a decent standard. We would make British finals, etc. You know, you think you know all, and then the, the word came out that they were bringing back the World League, but it was going to only be in Europe, and they were going to there was there was going to be a team in Scotland, and they need some Scottish players, and that's when it got real, and I suddenly realised that there would be this legitimate chance that I could turn what I'd always done as a hobby into my blinking job. And I mean, what an amazing opportunity! What was the process like? What did what what did you have to do to to basically stake your claim? Because there was a a set number of players that each team had to have that were homegrown, but it wasn't a massive amount of people. And I would imagine that the interest would have been quite strong. It was. I mean, there's a there's a, a photograph that lies about somewhere of the first ever tryout for the Scottish Claymores. You know, and there's probably about hundred guys. Now and they were we all we knew they were going to take seven seven homegrown players. Um, so it was a I want to say it was a 
a horrible wet rainy day at Heriot Watt and we all showed up and the head coach of the, the London Monarchs was there and some some other guys and even through some of the standard testing, you know, the the tea, some of the stuff you still do at the combine, you know. Uh, luckily they didn't do the uh, 220-pound bench press or would have been laughed out of town. Um, no, but you ran a 40, you did a tea test and stuff, a, a long jump, and then you did some some football drills. I mean, my problem, if you like, was... You know, this was, was a decent receiver from the wrists up. You know, everything else physically just didn't didn't really make the match at that time. I probably weighed about 10 and a half, 11 stone. Ran probably a, a 4, 7, 4, 8, 40. You know, it was... The, the measurables were nothing to write home about, but, you know, someone saw something. Um, I guess I could catch a ball and I could uh, run routes and decided that I, I could I could make the seven. And I, I'll never forget the day the letter dropped through my door telling me that I'd been selected to play for the Scottish Peoples. And my dream of turning my hobby into uh, getting paid for it was was uh, was real. And it was absolutely, I mean, everybody, everybody's got a passion in life and they're young, had a passion, a hobby. And for someone to turn around and say, that's it, you're going to get paid for it, was just, just fantastic. And then again, at that point, I didn't know if it was going to be for, you know, a year, you know, if it was going to be for a few months, would I make, you know, what would happen? It was a, a whole unknown. But that's when there was a quantum leap, guys. I mean, everything I knew before in the world of American football, just changed the, you know, when I stepped off that, that plane that, that day in Atlanta. So you obviously went to the States and, and was, it, was it just that, you know, people have been steeped in it, the sort of the playbook, the knowledge, where did you feel you had the most catching up to do? Well, I mean, I wasn't overwhelmed by the the cerebral part of it. You know, the, the learning the playbook, etc. I could handle. We had had some real good imports at the Glasgow Lions. And again, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd brought over playbooks from the States and we'd, we'd learned how a high-level American football team works. You know, we'd, we'd done that right at the, at the Glasgow Lions. But physically, physically, it just wasn't at the races back then. You know, to see these guys, the, the size, the, you know, the stature... You you know it's it's a it's just a, a different game. Um, that was quite intimidating. So um, you can know where you want to go and get to in the field. You know you can make your adjustments, you can make your age. But if you kind of got off the bloody line, because some you know two hundred twenty pound DBs got you jacked up, press man, and, <laughs> and and so that's where the real the real learning curve was 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 to just identify where I could. Where I could play, what I could do, and and think I swim, you know. And it was uh, there was a bunch of us out, and not many as back. To be honest, there was a real there was a real churn in the uh, in the nationals back then, and, and, and myself and Ben Torriero, I think, were, were lucky enough to be the only two of the original seven. I want to say that they were there on opening day roster. So um, I count my blessings that I. I managed to survive training camp. I mean, that first training camp, guys. I can tell you, I can tell you, my stories obviously bore everyone, but uh, yeah, it was absolutely uh, it, it, a lot of people did sing. And 
what about year one then? So you you've gone through training camp. You've you've been playing locally in in Scotland. You've gone and learned all this. You're up against guys who've been playing at college. Year one for the Claymores was a tricky one. Um, but what were the big takeaways that you got from that initial actual on the field action coming up against some of these guys? To be honest, I had to go over an inferiority complex about should I you know. Should I even be there? Was I good enough to be out there at that level? So then in in 95, I think what it did was just cement the fact that I could I could run routes, you know, I could I could find my way about the football field, not hurt the team, catch balls. I think I had something like maybe half a dozen catches in that opening opening season. I never even knew if I would make the field. Some of us didn't even know if the, the national player thing was going to be a, a PR stunt. And just so they could have just some Scottish voices to interview and some faces to, to be in the sideline. But, you know, I, in 95, I was lucky enough that I got on the got on the field and contributed with a few catches. Yeah. So, no, that just gave me, me confidence that I could uh, I could actually survive the season and, you know, survive physically out on the, on the field, make catches and be productive for the team. I find that really interesting, Scott, because you're you're almost battling two things. You're battling your own confidence, which which, which you come across as a confident guy, but you've got something to prove to yourself that you can be there. But you're also trying to prove to your teammates that yeah, you're you're not just some Scottish bloke there. You're one of them. You're one of the players that can be trusted to catch. And I guess that that really kicked off in year two and of course the World Bowl winning year. And that that was a completely different season for the Claymores. Uh, you had the nail on the head there. As you are fighting it in two fronts, you know you've got to, you've got to have the confidence in yourself that you can do it, and you aren't going to you aren't going to hurt the team in, in any respects. And then you've got to gain the confidence of your of your teammates. That's a big thing every year. You know they would they would look at us and the nationals, uh, especially looking at me. And you know the, the the day I walked off the plane from a first season, the the guy who took us from the Airport turns around at me and says, "You don't play football." Uh, I just couldn't <laughs> believe I was there to, to go to a, to a camp, and, uh, and then most people thought it was a kicker. Um, so yeah, but you would prove that at camp. I think that was the thing. As a as I got my my confidence up every year, you would go to camp. You would just have to prove yourself uh, every year. Now '96 was great. It was a big change taking over the team, um, and it was his baby from from the start. And you know. Um, there were some returning players, etc. Who you knew, so just it just was a just was a different vibe. Nineteen ninety six, uh, and we obviously got off to a tough, fantastic start. And obviously, we had a great first half of that season, which meant we knew we would ho- ha- uh, have home field advantage in the in the World Bowl. It was a kind of strange setup back then, and that that whole year was just a bit of, just a bit surreal, you know. Who end up playing in June in front of four, four, it makes me laugh even think about forty thousand people at Murrayfield, you know, where eighteen months before I was maybe playing in a, a public park somewhere, which you know somebody had lined that morning and there was you were moving the, the dog poo out the road. Yeah. <laughs> so. That was the next thing that I was going to come on to then is obviously, you know, for yourself, there's that realisation that this is real, but, you know, you're not just there for a PR stunt. You're there to contribute. 
obviously then you get the fans jumping on board uh, following what was a successful uh, and amazing season. Uh, how much did that change the mood for you guys and how important was it that people were coming along to see? Well, the fans were always great. You know, the fans were great from, from the initial season as well and that, that just seemed to grow. One of the, um, one of the big things for, for the team, I mean, yeah, we... We uh, we moved to Glasgow, you know. We moved the operation, if you like, to Glasgow, which was great for the team and just great for the operation. You know, we had a, a the guys just felt a lot better uh, when they lived in the city centre. When we lived in Edinburgh, we lived in the in the outskirts, and, and people just went a bit stuff crazy. So it really really helped the team to be to just be based in the city. And we, you know, we we set up some. Some great teams with Glasgow City Council, which gave a lot of kids access to to come to the games. Um, as I said, the the, the, the Silver fans were there from from minute one to minute last. I know a lot of those guys because at the end of the day, I've, I've always said this. And I think I said that night in, when we were together in Glasgow. I was just one of them. I was just a an American football fan that had played it as a hobby, and I'd been blessed enough that. No, I, I get given a chance to to go run about in between the white lines and, and manage to do it for 10 years, A, without hurting the team or B, without hurting myself. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it was a dream, obviously, to play, but did you ever think that there was going to be a sort of 10-year career out of it? I mean, that, that was quite something. Absolutely not. No, not at all. I mean, I, life's, life's what happens to you when you're busy making plans, isn't it? You, you just never really know. Um, it certainly wasn't what I would imagine to do for the between the ages of 25 and, and, and 35. But, I mean, it was it was just an absolute amazing, amazing experience. I would never change it. As I said, I literally did not know if I would last, last training camp in 1995. Um, and then, you know, I, especially, especially after I found the, the World War I season in 96 and then in 97, I really started feeling I could I could play. And I started looking after myself. I, well, I got involved more with, like, uh, support with sports science, et cetera. I, I, you know, I've had some fantastic support that. And just trying to, to maximise, you know, I would always... The lesson I would try and give young people is you have to absolutely maximise your own capabilities. Um, maximise what you can do. Focus on that. Make, make yourself the best that you could be. And that's all I did every year. I would look at the end of your season and say, well, that was good. But right, OK, where, how can I be better for next season? What do I need to work on? Speed, strength, etc. You know, route running. It was all kind of mostly physical things that I would I would just try and uh, improve on. Um, so you know, I managed to do that. I managed to do that till my mid. I would say I was playing my best football when I retired when I was thirty four years old. I was pro- I was in the best shape I'd ever been when I was when I was thirty four. Because that you know that decade that I played was when I could train more like a professional athlete and you know really really take it seriously. When as before you were just it was just a hobby and you would just uh, pick up when and if you could, you know, train once on a Wednesday night, play play at the weekend. You train in between <laughs> beers. <laughs> uh, there was, there was, I'm not going to. I'm not going to lie. There was some beers when I was a professional athlete. Yeah. So you were lucky enough to play in two World Bowls. The second one, 
Do you have memories of the second one? I mean, you know, you, <gasps> you, 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 I, I, I know, but I've, but I've got to because it just shows in professional sport that difference between the the high of winning the big event. You know, to have known that did did that help soften the blow? The fact you didn't win the second World Bowl that you played in, or did that have nothing to do with it? In the moment, you know, in the moment, you're absolutely devastated. Um, it was it was a close game. You know, was it tempered anyway by the fact that we'd won the World Bowl before? Probably a little bit. You know, I had a ring or whatever, but. Uh, for for those guys, you know, because that's the thing. Every year you would just there would be churn. You would get a bunch of forty new guys would appear. You'd build relationships and friendships, and you would just live. You know, it was like the Big Brother house. You'd all be living in cheek to jowl, and to go through that journey with people to go all the way to the very very end, and then unfortunately, um, not just got over the line is was was absolutely devastating, and. You know, again, there's an anecdote there which I hate bringing up. I, I'd never seen the film. I'd never seen the film of the uh, the 2000 World Bowl, and a few months ago, I came across it on YouTube, and and unfortunately, I found out that now I think I remember this. I actually tipped a ball that was intercepted, and I'd never seen it, and it was heartbreaking watching it, guys. <laughs> mm. Because then you start going. If and but and oh, so anyway, yeah, that, that made it, that made it tougher. So Scott, obviously, yeah, those highs and lows, obviously, from those two World Bowls. But I guess one of the great things is the sheer amount of players that you got to play with. So I guess the mm-hmm. next question is going to be then, who are the guys that you remember as being those standout players and the ones that you thought, God, that guy's really good. Oh, I am. Um, it's interesting that I mean there was there was. So many. I mean, you instantly want to say players like Dante Hall, who, um, I mean, Dante was probably the most successful of the Claymores going back to the uh, to the NFL. Um, Dante, it's interesting actually because that was the that was a real a real test of the NFL uh, Europe situation because he was sent. He was a running back at college and he was sent by the Chiefs. To be converted to a wide receiver, and that and that was one of the great benefits that NFL Europe could offer NFL teams, and and we, and we sent him back. You know, he, he, that's where Dante Hall learned the position of wide receiver about, you know, reading uh, past defenses and and how to play that that position and make adjustments. And and we sent him back to, we sent him back to the Kansas City Chiefs far better prepared for that. Um, no, and and Dante was just an absolute stud of an athlete, um, and you saw what he did. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, he, he became well known as, as for his return work, but you know he certainly made a lot of fantastic plays from the from the receiver position as well. He, he reminds me a, a lot of Tariq Hill actually, the way he, he just runs and plays and uh, the way his body is and stuff. But uh, there was others. I mean, there was. Um, Quarterback Craig Nall. I don't know if you guys know of Craig Nall. Craig Nall played for us in, oh, I can't even remember, 2002 or three or something, but what a QB he was. And he was he was uh, back up at Green Bay, and everyone thought he was just going to go back, but he just got stuck behind Brett Favre mm. <laughs> and couldn't go anywhere. But, you know, Aaron Stecker was another one who went back and 
and, and made it in the NFL. But, you know, one of the guys that was there with me for a lot of years, played for us for a number of years and became a really good friend of mine, actually, for, for all my, my days at the Claymores and I visited him in the States and stuff. I called Yo Murphy. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Yo, I mean, Yo lit up the World Bowl 96, uh, three TVs, including that unbelievable one-hander and stuff. And he came back again and played for us for another couple of years. What a player he was. And, and he went back and, and made the NFL. And, uh, yeah, I think he, he's I think he's still the only guy that has a World Bowl ring, Super Bowl ring, and a Grey Cup ring. So, um, yeah, he, he played for a, for a few years. But the thing was, guys, you know, that's that's the thing about the NFL. NFL Europe was there for for those guys who just fall through the cracks or the numbers game isn't right or, or for whatever reason just they, they, they don't, they, they didn't get a chance to make a roster. And NFL Europe gave these guys a, a, a short window and, and so many of them, so many of them took, Took advantage of that. I mean, you can you can look at the NFL Europe alumni that have went on to to start the NFL. It, it is quite incredible to see that, and I think also the the other thing it did, Scott, was I think it helped cement American football right across Europe uh, as a sport that people love to see and love to watch, and I think we'd love the the league back. Moving on to to today, you've still got a great passion for the game. Do you still watch it and follow it as much? I do. I mean, not as, as tightly and as closely as as I used to. You know, you you still find me on the couch of a of a Sunday evening hiding the remote control so no one can can <laughs> sit and watch the uh, watch the the NFL. Unfortunately, you know, I was really heavily involved with grassroots football all through my uh, all through my days with the Claymores, and it's just something that I've not been able to to recommit to. Just having my own family and career, etc. It's you know. Always felt if if you're going to do something, you may as well do it right. And in American football, I know how it should be done. And, and to do to do it at that level, you um, you've got to do it right, and it is pretty time intensive. But don't get me wrong, that you know I've I've been lucky enough that I'm still involved with some people, um, and they are doing it right. You know, there there is a legacy. Um, you know, it's interesting seeing people like, like Don Edmondson. Don Edmondson was a was a national with the Claymores and he's been back to, to like the Edinburgh Wolves and, and runs a real tight ship there, etc. And you know, a lot there's a, a a real kind of legacy from what the Claymores and its grassroots department stuff try to instill about how football should be taught and played and practiced. And a lot of those a lot of guys that are running the team now are running are involved in the teams came through maybe junior programs at that point. Where, where they knew how it was done, watching film, training, looking after yourself, good prep. Um, the amateur game, I mean, hats off to them. The amateur game's still going strong, and they're the ones that are really leading it. And I, I'm really glad it's still still a, in a strong position in the country, and long may it continue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Scott, it's been brilliant having you on the podcast. We were lucky enough to have you at Glasgow. Next year, 2021, you know, who knows what sport we're going to get this year. But next year, if nothing else, we've got the 25th anniversary of that 96 World Bowl. We've got to do something for that. 
Well, uh, tell me in. You you, uh, you might get me back in the beer for that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Paul. You heard it. That's an exclusive. Scott Cooper has signed up for the 2021-25 year anniversary of the World Bowl celebrations. Uh, we're going to have to do something for that. Absolutely. You know, we had Jim Ballard on the podcast last week. We've had yourself in the, uh, this week. Uh, you know, obviously the Claymores continue to be a route into American football. We all got to see it on Channel 4, but you know, for people of a certain age, the first time you really got to see it in action was at Murrayfield. People coming from all over Scotland, you know, there's there's a foundation upon which fandom of the sport in this country is absolutely, you know, the Claymores are part of that foundation, helped us grow. And, you know, for me, episode 100 of this NFL Scotland podcast, I used to come when I was young, so 15, 16, I would come along to the games and watch. And I used to, you know, watch you on TV and always think, oh, it's brilliant having a Scottish guy in the team. Go on, you know, Scott, when Scott Cooper scored a touchdown, that was extra special because he was Scottish. It meant something a little bit more. And who would have thought, you know, so many years down the line that here we are sitting around online, unfortunately, not face to face during uh, due to current circumstances. But all of us sitting here talking about American football, it's it's brilliant. And, you know, what a career you had. What an absolute pleasure speaking to you. So thank you very much for everything. And um, we hope to speak to you again at some point, Scott. And listen, let me let me thank you guys, because, again, you know, the um, I think you guys do a fantastic job in, in, in promoting the sport. And yeah, you know, you do a lot of focus in the NFL, but you you do turn the light on the local game as well. And uh, I think that's that's very admirable and, and well done, guys. Thank you, brilliant. Thank you, Scott. It's Thank been you, a Scott. pleasure having you. Anytime, guys. Stay safe. Paul, absolutely brilliant to hear from Scott. He was brilliant in Glasgow. He was brilliant as well this time. It's always fascinating to hear his stories about the Scottish Claimers. Yeah, and when you think of how long he actually played, you know, you, you, some people might think the Claymores lasted, you know, two or three years. I mean, a 10-year career. It, it's quite remarkable. He is the only Scott player in the Scottish Claymores Hall of Fame as well, which is some achievement. Yeah, and for me as well, and I kind of alluded to this at the end of the interview, I got a little bit fanboy, but um, for me, you know, going as a teenager to see the Scottish Claymores, the stories that went with the Claymores of Scott Cooper, he, you know, there was press coverage there because it was the opportunity for Scottish guys to go and play, and he was definitely one of the pick of the bunch, you know. In that um, in that year that they won the World Bowl, of course you had Gavin Hastings, who had a lot of history, but for me, Scott Cooper was a player I always loved to go and see. I loved to watch him play um, and it was a fan's favourite it was brilliant going to see the games uh, my cousin used to pick me up her and our other half they used to go to the games they would pick me up take me to the games I would love it it would be June we'd still sit with a blanket around our legs because it was in Murrayfield and it was bloody freezing and then we'd come away again so for me you know my my time in American football definitely started with the Claymore so I always love speaking to Scott. Absolutely brilliant. And he's somebody that we will definitely try and do more with. Uh, already speaking to him potentially about getting involved uh, in some events next year. Um, speaking on next year, though, we'll go to the news here. And obviously, we've had confirmation now that there is not going to be any international games this year. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. Well, it doesn't come as a surprise to me. And if we can bring Ian in here, I mean, Ian, you're very, very doubtful of of the games getting underway as as scheduled as it is. Yeah, I mean, the fact that America is maybe a, a month or so behind Europe when it comes to the COVID infection and the struggle that's going on at the moment to try and get games in place next season in, in Europe... 
the the kind of rumours that are coming out about lockdown in in the UK is it might not be till November December time where you have large social gatherings. So in effect, the reopening of pub cinemas, but Stadia come into that as well. So you could have games getting played when in terms of football in our country, but um, with no fans in attendance. But then you add on the fact that America is still behind in the whole infection cycle. For them to have capacity stadiums in the first week of September, it seems a bit far-fetched. They're, they're not going to postpone the season because of broadcasting contracts, but they may well have to play maybe the first couple of months in open, uh, no unattended stadia. Yeah, I'm just wondering, Charles, you know, if, you know, it depends on social distancing, you know, would it be even feasible to put 10,000 people in a 60,000-seater stadium or is that kind of thing just completely pointless? I think you either do it properly or you don't do it at all. And you've got to consider everybody's safety here. Um, you hear so many uh, discussions about how people are going to socially distance on public transport, on airplanes. But this isn't ultimately we're talking about sport here which is is a pastime and is enjoyment and obviously creates huge amounts of finance and is very important for so many, many, many people. But there, it would be an unnecessary risk, I think, for the NFL to open up stadiums to, to the public um, if there's even the slightest chance of, uh, of people contracting the virus. And until such time as it could be guaranteed, I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I could see potentially a way whereby... You know, you could you could have fans um, scanned and, and get temperature checks, but it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to be very difficult for those who can't go. So, it, I, I I I do see a situation whereby it's going to either be fans as normal or none at all, and I think you're going to see that in a lot of sports in a lot of countries. Yeah, I agree. Gordon, you, you're a man who loves statistics, research and analysis. I saw a tweet, and I'm not going to reveal the person who did it, but they've done some research to suggest that 88% of Americans will watch an awful lot of sport once it returns. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's surprising when you look at how things have gone in America. <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on, did you need to research that? Come on, we're desperate for sport. Yeah, I mean, and, and the other thing is that, you know, even aspects like taking temperatures and stuff, can you imagine trying to take the temperature of a fan who's been tailgating and drinking beer for five hours and then you tell them, <laughs> you're, you're not coming into this stadium? This is a country that have had riots at City Hall and things like that. And we're now going to tell them that they can't come in. I, I think they're just going to let it, they're just going to play it out as normal. Um, you know, unless a big second wave hits from this, then then things really might be up in the air. Um, but I, the way it's going, it looks like they're just going to open things back up again and it's just going to happen as it happens. See, that's really interesting because everything I've been hearing is that college season won't go ahead. And the college season is maybe two weeks ahead of the NFL. And they seem quite adamant that it's going to be a major issue for college football to proceed. Um, and they've still got large broadcasting contracts, especially the SEC. So um, you might start to see a kind of dichotomy of how they're going to work it. I've got I've got an idea and a theory on why college won't go ahead. And it's because the whole argument for colleges around not pay, paying players is that they're doing this as a scholarship, as an opportunity, they get their tuition paid and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if they are at the point where 
the the talk today is that colleges and universities are going to start being open kind of in the fall for people um, or the autumn for us, I suppose, um, for people to go to, to actually study, at which point they're going to have to either allow college players in earlier so that they can have their mini camps and their training ahead of the season or, you know, delay that until later on. And if they have them in earlier before the rest of the university is open, they are fundamentally saying you are different from the student body. You're not here for your tuition. You know, this, the the sport side of this is really important, at which point the can of worms that's open in terms of the players suddenly having the leverage to say, well, hang on a minute, you have just proven to us once and for all that this absolutely is about the money and that's why we're here and it's not about tuition. So I think that's why universities and colleges might say, Let, let's, let's take this year and just accept that we're not going to get um, a season because the ramifications could be huge. There's been talk of a, a sorry, you know, there's, there's been talk of a of another draft later on in the year because the college game is so much in doubt. So if you're a player who potentially was would have been a maybe a fourth round pick in this year's draft and has decided to go back to college for one more year to maybe bump up your draft standing for next year, you must be sitting thinking, well, what am I going to do here? It's a real it's a really difficult dilemma. And going back to what you said, Gordon, about the fact that they might just go for it and invite you know, the fans back in as normal. Given that America is the, the world center of uh, litigation, what happens when somebody catches the virus after being at an NFL game? <laughs> yes, indeed. Interesting times ahead and politics galore. Who would have thought we'd say that about America? Eh? Politics getting in the way of things. <laughs> Um, so let's move on. And sad news, um, of course, the, the sad death of Don Shula, um, arguably one of the greatest, certainly many saying the most winningest coach of all time uh, in the NFL. I think his win record is by far the best. I think that Belichick's the closest and he's still a few away from that. Um, obviously coached the 1972 Dolphins, died at the age of 90. Uh, Gordon, a, a big, big coach who had a massive impact on the game. Yeah, a huge impact in the game. And then even just the fact of, you know, coaching an undefeated team is something that gets brought up every couple of seasons. The, the longer a team, you know, as soon as a team gets to 8 and 0, 9 and 0, we start talking about that undefeated Dolphins team. So, and that's, that's a record that will stand for probably a considerable number of years yet because in a 16 game season, you're going to have to get really lucky. So he's a name, he's a coach who, uh, deservedly is going to have his name mentioned probably every single NFL season for the significant future. I, I would just like to, I'm not going to speak badly of somebody that's just passed away, but I will bring in some sobriety and point out that Don Shula was the head coach for the biggest humiliation in NFL history when the Jets beat the Colts in that Super Bowl when Joe Namath predicted they were going to win. Um, so he went from being the, the biggest haddock in the NFL to being one of the biggest uh, winningest coaches. Yeah, if you, yes. if, you know, if you know adversity and come back from it, I think that, yes, that, of course. that says a lot. And I, I think, you know, with Don Shula, there'll be a lot of tributes, but I think, you know, simply put, it was a, it was a life well lived. Yes, absolutely. Um, right, bits of news then before we wrap up. Uh, two things that we need to cover. One, first of all, Andy Dalton ends up going to the Dallas Cowboys to be the backup to Dak Prescott or 
is it just in case Dak throws his toys at the pram and decides not to play this year? Who knows? We'll leave that open. Thought he might have gone to New England, but lots of salary restrictions there, potentially the reason that he didn't. He ends up not having to move address because he lives in the sort of Dallas area. Uh, anyone surprised by this one? I'll come to you first, Charles. Were you surprised by Dalton? I think it's... Mm, yeah, we have a little bit from the point of view of the fact I think he has to accept he'll probably be a backup, but it's probably quite a smart move from Jerry Jones because it gives them a bit of leverage, Dallas, because, uh, well, Dak is in contract year at the moment. So if there's a, it, it puts the pressure on Dak Prescott to play at a very, very high level and justify his financial demands because Andy Dalton is a Pretty decent back. He's, he's a pretty decent backup. He's probably the best backup in the league now. Um, and if we'll come things to the go best backup in the that, league in a minute. Uh, what? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Apologies. <laughs> I knew. I knew you wanted to talk about that. <laughs> the. Um, it, it, I think it, it puts pressure on Dak Prescott, and I think it maybe it suits Andy Dalton for a year because it's only a year's contract, and then who knows what will happen? It's a lot can happen in twelve months. It's smart business. I mean, I think Dallas fancy their chances. And if you fancy your chances and you think you can head towards a Super Bowl, I think it's always smart to have a, a quarterback that you can trust as the backup. I think it's smart business by Dallas. <laughs> oh, you can hear the salt. You can hear the salt in his voice. Now, we need to we need to come on to this. I'm, I'm sorry, Andy, we're skipping over you because this has been a bumper edition already. And, and gents, we got we got to wrap up with this one. When we were speaking to Jim Ballard, we were obviously discussing Jameis Winston, who had signed or was about to sign at that point his one-year uh, deal with the Saints on a pittance of money, you could say. A pittance of money. So keen is Jameis to play for the mighty New Orleans Saints. He's done it for a song. Um, Mr. Mitchell was very dignified and civil in his opinions of Mr. Winston, and we know fine well that ain't the truth. So um, we're going to keep uh, Paul out of this. Gordon, first of all, could Jameis be the best backup in the in the NFL and potentially be a future New Orleans Saints starting quarterback? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> well, Firstly, thank you for listening to the NFL <laughs> podcast. That's all we've got time for tonight. Thanks for joining us. We might be back if Cameron's still with us. Until next time, bye for now. Nice try. Is that good? Can nice we go with try, that? Mitchell. <laughs> right. The, uh, the, the thing with Jameis is that, yes, there is some, some, there's a lot of bad that has been in there in his career, but his high-level play is better than a significant number of quarterbacks in the NFL. He is, in my mind, absolutely a top 20 starting quarterback in the NFL. Uh, and let's not discount the fact that he's finally had LASIK surgery, which, you know, if you're going to look at bad decision-making, being a quarterback in the NFL for as long as he has been and not getting eye surgery um, to try and improve that when clearly you weren't seeing properly, that's bad decision-making in itself. But if he if, if that doesn't prove him and can prevent some of the horrible throws he makes, the Saints are going to have themselves a serious long-term option to take over from Drew Brees that isn't a gadget wildcat quarterback who everyone is pretending is somehow going to be the future. <laughs> double down. Double down. You took Taysom with you as well. Right. Um, anyone else want to have a shot before we let Mitchell have his retort? What, what what I'd like to know is whether or not, and I get that he's had his uh, laser surgery. I love the fact that he can see, and he was um, waxing lyrical about the fact that he could see, I think, to local reporters. when It, it beggars belief that no one in Tampa 
checked his eyes for five years. But what I want to know is if he is indeed colorblind, as you're, as you two both think he might be, d- does that have an extra added effect in a dome? Um, it's Listen, a, it's a good point, but yeah, Ian, I'll let you come in. Char- Charles, you you think it beggars belief that nobody checked whether he was colorblind? Who drafted Vinny Testaverde? Oh god, that's too, too too early for me. <laughs> Tampa Bay, Tampa, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay drafted. What particular condition did uh, Vinny Testaverde suffer from? Oh, really? Oh, colour blindness. What, must, be a, must be a Tampa what, thing, eh? What colour was Tampa Bay's uniform at that time? Orange. And if if you've got issues with seeing orange, what's the other colour that you can sometimes have trouble with switching it around with colour blindness? Green. And what team did he throw most of his interceptions against? <laughs> the New York Jets. Really? Yeah. Yes. I just wonder why this never was even picked up in college. It's it's staggering. This is assuming that the theory that Paul and Cameron have is correct, of course. But hey, listen, when Jameis uh, rolls out in the NFC Championship game because Drew Brees has broken his thumb, Paul, you'll be loving it. I'm taking the fanboys' uh, view on this. I don't want to see Jameis Winston playing for the New Orleans Saints, period. I have got uh, a dislike of Jameis Winston. I didn't like the fact. I didn't like how he came across in hard knocks. I didn't like how he played in Tampa Bay. And, you know, you just take a dislike to certain players. He is my dislike. I would rather the Saints played Bobby Aber, who's 60 this year, than play Jameis Winston. Uh, so, no, nothing is going to convince me that this is a good idea. Now, I accept Gordon's you know, analysis. I accept. I, I understand it all. Just no. No, 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 and, and no again. I would rather go back to 1999, where the Saints, I think, held a record. In fact, it was 98 as well, of having... Two players called Billy Joe play at quarterback for them. They had Billy Joe Tolliver and Billy Joe Hobert playing. Go and find out what one of the Billy Joes is doing because he'd do a job for me. <laughs> Irrational, I know, and I don't care. Thankfully, this is being recorded. So when New Orleans are in the Super Bowl and Jameis is starting for them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, hand on heart at the moment, I have to say, I, I, I hope you, you're going to owe him a big apology, Paul. That, a really I'm, big apology. I don't know if I'd watch Charles. Genuinely, I mean, it's that bad. Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced I would actually watch. I don't like him as a player, and and that's where I really, really struggle. And it's it's difficult because you know football doesn't bother me and, and all that sort of stuff. But there are just some players. I mean, Cameron, you had you know Richard Sherman going yep, yep. from a hated player to your team. I mean, how did that feel? So I struggled with it, um, and there's still a part of me is not quite willing to accept Richard Sherman. I'm still like, mm. he's changed who he is. He, he's definitely changed his approach and his his mouth runs a lot less. And I don't like that in any player. Um, I'll be honest. I don't like a mouthy player uh, that's in your face and aggressive with it. Obviously, there's trash talk on the, part, on the field. Um, I just didn't like the Legion of Boom approach to hit them hard, hard enough that it hurts them. I didn't like that style of play. I wouldn't like it if the Niners did that intentionally. There's a difference between hitting hard and hitting hard to hurt. Um, And I think that they played that way. They played nasty on defense, and it was just big mouth. I didn't like it. 
but I've come round to him because, um, you know, I'm not going to list him in one of my favourite players. I'm not going to buy one of his tops, but I've absolutely come round to him because he has, he's changed. He, he certainly feels like his approach has changed. He's kind of become an older, cooler camera head and, and almost like a, a teacher to the younger players on the team. And that's that's been good for him. Um, so therefore, I, my advice to you would be, don't write him off yet. Be, be salty, be disappointed, be cynical and doubt. But when he puts on that black top and he walks out oh, into don't, that dome. Don't. He he snaps the ball, he steps back twice. Drew Brees is on the side with a sore thumb again. He's soaking it as we speak. Jameis sees his man open. It's Michael Thomas. It's Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas hasn't caught anything all day. Why? Because Brees has got a sore thumb anyway. He's been handed off to Kamara. There is Jameis Winston. He Bless finds Michael Thomas in the end zone and you beat the Atlanta Falcons by a single point on the last play of the game and you will raise to the feet and you will put your hands in the air and you will say all hail Jameis Winston old crabs I have old no, crab legs has done it I have no idea how we've made 100 episodes <laughs> genuinely last word to Ian before we wrap you were you were coming in there Yes, you saw you saw what happened to the Lions when Matt Stafford went down last season. Teams that only have one quarterback and dross it back up. That's how and that's how coaches get fired because you end up going four and twelve when you thought it was going to be your run into the playoffs. Teams like the Cowboys, teams like the Saints, are, um, and Packers. They're going to have hope whenever their massive franchise quarterback goes down because of smart decisions and not only other players in the team shelving their egos, but the fans shelving their egos to accept that it's all in the good of the team. And you might not like him, but he is... Uh, one of the best backup quarterbacks now in the NFL and you don't have to worry every time Breeze takes a hit. Yeah, I'll tell you what, when the Philadelphia Eagles fan is the voice of reason, then you've got reason to worry. <laughs> <laughs> they boo Santa Claus in, in Philadelphia. What can we say? Guys, we, we are going to have to wrap it yes. up there. It's been brilliant. Yes. So just before we finally do, we, we played some um, listener thoughts for you earlier on. Here's a couple more, including our one resident Bucks fan. He's got to have a word too. So you're saying they're going to let me on the podcast at last? Wow. Okay then. Hello NFL Scotland. Paulie here. Happy 100th episode to the regular gang involved in the podcast and those behind the scenes that have supported you to reach this milestone. Cam and Paul are clearly starting to establish themselves as a famous double act in sports broadcasting like Nansen Romo, Buck and Aitman and Booger McFarlane and the Booger Mobile. So Cam has asked for my impersonal memories of the podcast, of which there are many, particularly as I've been the butt of a few of Paul's Christmas cracker style jokes over the last couple of years. But I'm going to leave the friendly banter to one side for now at least and concentrate more on what you guys have contributed to in terms of supporting Gus NFL fans that live in Scotland and beyond. You've worked tirelessly to bring us regular and original Scottish slanted NFL content, particularly in the strange times that we currently live in. And you've selfishly given up your time to create some great fan events and parties. I personally want to say thanks for organising these and for the new friends that I've met from these events alone. I've also got to know you guys a wee bit as well, and from my experience you've always been generous with your time and are always open to ideas as to how the podcast can be developed. Cam, what probably started out as a project has probably well exceeded your expectations. Well done on what you've achieved with the podcast so far. And Paul, despite the persona at times, I've always found you to be a very friendly and welcoming guy, and I'd like to apologise to all listeners for destroying that particular myth. 
So as we look forward to another 100 episodes of the podcast, and I pass the Jameis Winston torch on to Paul, don't drop it, sorry, couldn't resist, I hope I speak to all of your listeners in saying thanks for the hour or so a week that we can just go and forget about the outside world and enjoy your NFL Scotland content. And Cam, I'm holding you to the offer of when my team finally beat you-know-who next year. Thanks, guys. You're a class act. And thanks to your listeners as well, without whom we wouldn't be celebrating this special special episode, this 100th episode of the NFL Scotland podcast. Best wishes for you all. Take care. Go Bucks. Hey, Cameron. Paul Bryan here. Congratulations to you and the team on 100 episodes of the pod. I really enjoy what you've done. You've given the NFL fans in Scotland an insight to the game, somewhere to talk football and share the love of the NFL. The guests that you've had have been fab. It's been great hearing from ex-players who know what it's like to play at the top level of the game. My highlight has to be the 2018 NFC Championship game, the live event that was held at the Golf Tower. Being a Rams fan, being under two minutes away from being knocked out, and seeing the greatest piece, or possibly the worst piece, of officiating that anyone will ever see. I was sitting behind Paul when the call, or no call, happened. I was elated, he was devastated. I think it just goes to show what NFL fans are like. You can have one on top of the world, one at rock bottom, but when it's all said and done, you can turn around and say, that was a shocking call, but you can shake hands, have a drink, and maybe one day laugh about it. Keep up the good work. Look forward to many, many more episodes, live events, and never know, maybe even some proper referee calls, as long as it doesn't affect the Rams. Stay safe, take care, speak soon. NFL Scotland, Ross Henderson here, Patriots fan. I was a guest back in episode two, and I just wanted to say a quick thank you and a well done to Paul and Cam and all the NFL Scotland team for making up to 100 episodes. Absolutely brilliant. I've listened to every single one and looking forward to 100 more. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the work. Well, that's the full-time whistle then for episode 100. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Share your thoughts as ever on this episode via Twitter at ScotlandNFL and on Facebook by searching for NFL Scotland. We're growing all the time. We need your help to keep that up. We appreciate every retweet and share. Love hearing your thoughts on what we've been discussing. Leave us a review on iTunes if you can. It's back to business and we've let the dust settle on the 2020 draft just long enough that we think it's time to give it our full detailed review. We'll be having that coming up for you very soon. Our thanks to Jamie Borthwick, to Ian Stephen, Gordon McGuinness and Charles Patterson. Brilliant chat tonight. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you for listening and taking the time to share your thoughts. We'll be back next week with a full post-draft review. But until then, bye for now.